Hello and welcome everyone to the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, and that's Bjorn. Let's get after it. So Bjorn, last time we talked about the Maryland Campaign of 1862 in the American Civil War. This week we're going to talk about the conclusion of that campaign with a discussion of the Battle of Antietam, or Sharpsburg if you like. We have McClellan and the Union facing off against General Lee and the Confederacy. McClellan's going to bring 87,000 soldiers to this fight, and Lee will have 45,000 soldiers sitting in defense. Yeah, so let's do a quick recap on on the Maryland campaign. Why did he move into it? Um, many people agree that there were a couple different reasons why Lee would have invaded into the North, involving agricultural production, helping to sustain his army, uh, talking about potential European recognition. Basically, it all comes down to this. Remember, we talked about Order 191, which was captured, brought to McClellan. McClellan says, here's what, here's information with which if I cannot beat Bobby Lee, I'd be willing to go home, right? And then he waits uh-huh. 18 hours or he gets his army moving before he sets up st- his tent stakes and begins his movement. So here we are. We found ourselves on the north side of the Potomac River and a little community called Sharpsburg, Maryland. At just and north of is, the Potomac. It is right on the other side of the river. Like, Yeah, and there is one bridge. And that that right there is something that's really concerning. So quick, let's do a like a look at what terrain yeah. the scenarios got itself on. So the city of Sharpsburg is on the north side of the Potomac River. There is one bridge that goes across the river. And, uh, and so basically his back- That bridge is southwest of Sharpsburg. The Potomac River is basically the western boundary of this battle. It's the western part of the area of operations for Lee. So Lee is backed up to the Potomac, which is to his west and to his south, right? And then along to the front of Lee in his east is the Antietam Creek that runs straight north through Sharpsburg. There's three primary bridges that cross over the Antietam Creek. You have the Burnside Bridge in the south. Uh, today is what's called the Burnside Bridge. You have the middle bridge, and then you have the upper bridge. And then there's a bunch of woods and pieces of forest north of him. And then the terrain um, is kind of all over the place. It's you know pretty rolling area. Sharpsburg is in the middle, and then he's surrounded on three sides by water, and then woods to the north. Right. And this is a if you have an opportunity to go to the actual battlefield, this is a beautiful battlefield. It's very well kept. One of my favorite things about the Antietam battlefield site is that they actually attempt to ensure that it looks like it did 160 years ago. One of the things that I dislike is when you're at a uh, battlefield tour and the tour guide says, and the Union came up over that hill, but imagine there were no trees there because uh, at the time there weren't. Well, Antietam, that battlefield is quite honestly exactly the same as what it was uh, in a a terrain and a a view kind of form as it would have been during the battle in 1862. They actually have on the northern portion of this battlefield, the battle took place in what's known as the cornfield. Mm-hmm. And every other year, a farmer plants corn in that field. So you actually can stand there. And if it's if it is September of the year that you go and visit, every other year, you'll be able to see a cornfield. Obviously, the next the year after that is a, a soybean field, and it's not entirely historically accurate, but it's a beautiful battlefield. Yeah. And if this podcast were to grow, I would greatly encourage us to go and take a trip out there oh, yeah. and, and you know have a conversation there. Yeah, so it's this is interesting. I think we should talk about how the armies are set up here. So Robert E. Lee, his army organization in the year 1862 would have had two corps, very large organizations under the commands of guys like Longstreet, who was on the left, and then uh, or Longstreet was on the right, and then Jackson on the left, and the units that fall under those areas. Right. So he's got, 
Elite Jackson and Longstreet both have pretty set in defenses. You know, they're behind barriers. They've set up a nice little engagement area into the front of them. Then they have artillery that is back behind them, you know, overwatching those defensive positions. This is a major mistake early on in the battle that I think McClellan makes. On the Confederate side, Lee, I think, sets up his army in the best way possible with the terrain that he has. So I, I don't know if there's anything that Lee could have done differently here, but McClellan makes a huge mistake with the terrain of this battlefield. So first off, McClellan will set up his headquarters like a mile back away from the attack. And so that is a very difficult place because we're talking the, the American Civil War, 1862. There's no radio. There's no cell phones. There's no satellite. Like they, he cannot keep the only way to keep track of his army is on a map and then getting runners back from the front. So McClellan has, and those runners are going a mile back and forth. So it's, you know, a two mile round trip for him to get any sort of information back from uh, the front. And then McClellan only issues individual attack orders to his corps. They have no idea what their adjacent units are doing. Hooker does not know what Burnside's doing that day. Burnside doesn't know what Hooker's doing. So there's no sort of way for them to interlock fires and plan this battle together. They're all separated. So this basically turns into three separate engagements that becomes the major battle instead of one total integrated attack. Right. And when you're when you're talking about this battle essentially turns into a defensive posture for Robert E. Lee. Right. But initially when this battle is, when you're setting up your pieces, for instance, remember the Antietam Creek is splitting the Union Army in half. And so the concept is not a terrible one in which Robert E. Lee would have looked at the battlefield, said as soon as McClellan sends his, you know, the northern flanking force across Antietam Creek, as soon as that happens, then I've got half of the Union Army on one side of the river mm -hmm. and I've got half on the other. It's a very similar concept to what we saw during the Seven Days campaign uh, where the Union had found themselves, McClellan had done the exact same thing. He found his army on one side of the, of the river and then on the other was another portion of it. And it's hard to reinforce when you're talking about different sides yeah. of rivers. So whereas not the greatest idea for Lee to come up with, you know, 35,000 Confederates versus the 80 some thousand Union soldiers, but on both sides of the river, we're going to see those numbers significantly decrease. And this battle, like you said, it's going to take place in three different phases along three different points on the battle that took place at three different times. Mm -hmm. Now, one would think that if you were to harness the entirety of your force and send them forward all at the same time in a coordinated assault, there is no way that Robert E. Lee would have been able to nope. resist that. Nope. But instead, what we're going to see throughout the entirety of this battle is things get hot and heavy in the north where Jackson's at. So then things are quiet down by the bridge. So Lee's able to remove troops from right. that area, move them forward. He's utilizing interior lines. Yep. So whereas the, the Union has got a, a semicircle that they're trying to to move around in order to reinforce one side of that circle, they have to go in a much longer route in order to reinforce that side. Whereas what uh, what Lee can do is he can just take the the diameter of the circle and he can send it straight across in order to reinforce areas in which most need that reinforcement at the time. He's going to be doing this all day. He's going to be run ragged. And it's important to understand that Robert E. Lee wasn't in the best of health at this time during the battle. He had recently fallen off his horse. He had hurt both of his arms and, and he wasn't feeling all that great the day of the battle, but he is still able to perform at a rate that far exceeds what one would assume a general at the time could do. Ideally, what I think McClellan should have done here was set his cavalry 
along the Antietam Creek to prevent any sort of crossing of the Confederates across the Antietam Creek and then attack integrated across the upper bridge and then down into Sharpsburg as one one complete force. And not doing that, like you said, split his force. And that goes against one of the principles of the offense, right, which is massing. He didn't mass his troops. And so then that allows Lee to kind of work those ratios in his favor for each of these separate engagements. So let's talk about the first one, the morning phase. Major General Joseph Hooker and the First Corps, he's got about 8,600 men. They begin their advance 5.30 in the morning on the 17th of September. And his objective was to seize the high ground where Dunker Church is located north of Sharpsburg. It's a pretty nice high piece of ground that would give him a commanding view of the rest of Sharpsburg. Nice place to put artillery. That's actually where the Confederates have their artillery placed. So he's attacking into the strong area defense of Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson had 7,700 men in this defensive position. So we're looking at an attack of 8,600 against 7,700. That, Bjorn, is not a good ratio for an attack. So what is the what is the ratio like for attack see even in, in modern U.S. Army doctrine? A three to one, you know, attacking versus defending ratio. Right, and he most certainly does, does not, not have it's almost right. a one to one. Right. Well, and and as they're going to be pushing through, they're going to be advancing through this cornfield. What we're going to see during this portion is we're going to see an engagement in the cornfield that just it it becomes a complete and utter brawl it's in horrifying. the fact that one side's going to advance through. Then the other one's going to counterattack, push them back. Then there's another counterattack, pushes them back. It gets pretty hot and heavy here at the very beginning of the battle on the north side in the cornfield yeah. on that day. Yeah, so Hooker advances his men through the north woods into the cornfield. This cornfield is not very big. Like This is not a Minnesota or Iowa cornfield. This is a very small cornfield. It is 250 yards deep and 400 yards wide. It is a very small area. Hooker moves into the cornfield, and as a Union moves into the cornfield, an artillery duel erupts. Nine Union batteries, there's like five Confederate batteries, and they're firing canisters shot at each other, cannons shot at each other over the heads of these infantrymen. There is Confederates hiding in the cornfield. Uh, Hooker apparently sees the glint of the sun off of these bayonets and pulls his infantry up, but fighting's going to happen. They get into this rough and tumble fighting in this cornfield early on in the morning. Uh, and from the accounts that I read, this fighting was incredibly brutal. The worst casualty rate of the battle happens here. The 12th Massachusetts Infantry sustains a 67% casualty rate fighting in the cornfield area. But through all that, all that hard fighting, Hooker's Corps is able to continue steady movement south, and he begins to penetrate Jackson's defensive belt here. Uh, on the south side of the cornfield. But there is a backup. General Hood's division, 2,300 men at 7 a.m., begin their advance through the Westwood to counterattack into Hooker's Corps. Now, here's where I got I to stop you on this one because I got to tell you a fun little oh, yeah. anecdotal story. So Hood, you know, he's a Tex, he's, he's not originally from Texas, but he is leading a Texan regiment Beneath. during this battle. And his men were actually in reserve. Yeah. And so they had been, they had gone without food for a considerable amount of time, at which point Jackson says, hey, your boys need a rest. They've been marching for a long time. They didn't have an opportunity to eat. How about you guys sit in reserve here? They were actually sitting behind the church okay. saying, hey, you know, start a fire and start making some of these. They used to call them Johnny cakes. Essentially, you take some cornmeal you mash it together with some oil and then you stick it on your bayonet and you roast it over a fire. And so this is what these men are doing is they're attempting to create breakfast. They're making their breakfast when all of a sudden this battle in the cornfield erupts and it is so 
devastating in its initial uh, phases that a, a runner comes quick and says, Hood, you got to go and you got to go now. There's no time mm-hmm. for breakfast. So imagine, you they, know, they if just you're hangry, from Harper's Ferry, right? I think that's where they're coming from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These dudes had they been, they'd all gone night. all night yep. and they're hungry. They haven't eaten. If you're hangry, these Texans, they were the definition of hangry. <laughs> and so they get into battle and they are furious. And we're going to see a massive advance by these Texans. Hood's actually going to win a huge, uh, he's going to get a lot of his reputation is going to be built on that day. Now, Hood's Texans took a lot of pride in what they did on this day of the battle. But one thing's for sure, you did not want to find yourself under Hood's command because his men took immense casualties in every engagement of the Civil War that Hood found himself acting in. If you were in his, if you were in his brigade, if you were in his division, if you were in his army, you were going to sub- receive a substantially higher casualty rate than anyone else on the battlefield. It's it's dangerous being in Hood's army. So Hood's men, like you said, take the brunt of this fighting. They were ferocious, but they paid for it. They also took heavy casualties, sixty percent casualties, but they were able to prevent the defensive line of Jackson from crumbling, and they held off. Hooker's first corps. This is an interesting quote. When asked by a fellow officer where his division was, Hood replied, dead on the field. He lost 60% of his men in the cornfield. And it is estimated that the cornfield changed hands no fewer than 15 times over the course of the morning, Bjorn. Just the morning fight. Right. And they, they said that by the end of it, there wasn't anything in the form of corn left in that field. So think of it this way. Your regiment's advancing through this cornfield. And it's not a cornfield like it, like you said. It doesn't look like it does today. Today we plant our corn six inches apart, thirty-six inch rows. Back then it was basically one plant, thirty-six inches every single way. Yeah. So they weren't in rows of six. They were of six inches. They were thirty-six inches apart. And basically, you'd be able to walk comfortably through this without too much trouble. Mm-hmm. But by the end of this battle, bullets had whipped them down. Soldiers had knocked down yeah. this corn. There's nothing three inches or higher lasting in that cornfield during these 15 times in which they traded places. So General Hooker, uh, his attack is culminated before breaking through the defensive line. So he calls for support uh, and he calls for support from Mansfield's uh, 12th Corps. Uh, Mansfield comes to the battle with 7,200 men. So concerned that his men would bolt under fire, he marched them in a formation that was known as a column of companies closed in mass. A bunch of formation in which a regiment was arrayed 10 ranks deep instead of the normal two. And as his men entered the East Woods, they presented a beautiful artillery target. Almost as good a target as a barn, Mansfield himself was shot in the chest. So when you're talking about this uh, column of companies closed in mass, that was a tactic that was utilized heavily by Napoleon Bonaparte in the early 1800s because they had the Levée en masse, uh-huh. which is the army that was based off of citizens. It was the first time yeah. in history that a mass draft, in, es- in essence, was created. And so they were, in fact, scared that these men were not going to have the gumption to make this battle happen. Now, what, you know, in the early 1800s, you didn't have rifles that could go 500 yards. And you also didn't have canister shot that was as devastating or artillery that was as accurate. So there, he does have a point when he's saying, I'm afraid my new rookie soldiers are going to break in, in the face of fire, but this is how you get That's how you break them in the face of fire. Major casualties. Yeah. Major casualties. And- uh, this goes back to what we we're talking about, like with McClellan's ba- battle plan. Why would you send Hooker and Mansfield in in a column? You know, like one after the other. Why don't you send them together in an integrated attack? You know, you take 
you take Hooker and attack into the line. Then you send Mansfield around to the west between the Confederates and the Potomac and swing around into the rear. Like, there was some cavalry up there doing some guard actions, but a corps would have totally dislodged any sort of Confederate position that was northwest. I don't understand it. Yeah, so one could maybe utilize the excuse, if you're trying to excuse their behavior, the lack of communication, the inability to coordinate your actions, utilizing radios and that kind of stuff, you're limited in the amount of range that a runner or someone riding a horse could do. But these guys, they all had watches, and you would have met that night, and usually many times in these battles, the, the commanding officer would say, you know, we're going to be advancing at this time. But these corps commanders, they would find some reason to delay or they would have some excuse for that, why they were not able to perform accountably. And it's just one of the most frustrating things would have been to be a general in the Civil War trying to coordinate the actions of other generals. And that is, you know, one of the key things that I think a general and his staff do at this level is coordinate with adjacent units to attack in mass. And they just can't do it. Right. And that's what, uh, you know, Longstreet and Jackson, that's why they did so well as corps commanders is because they were able to oversee their corps. They were able to look at it and not only are they working to sustain and train and keep their their corps together, but Longstreet, when the battle started, he sat on, you know, he'd sit on a stump. Grant would sit on a stump and whittle while his armies were fighting because he had trained his men Mm -hmm. and he trusted them to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So in an effort to turn the Confederate left flank and relieve the pressure on Mansfield's men, Sumner's 2nd Corps is ordered at 7.20 a.m. to send two divisions into battle. Sedgwick's division of 5,400 men uh, was the first to ford the Antietam. And then at 9 o'clock, Sumner's Corps found itself flanked on three sides and cut the pieces. So they just keep sending Union men into the Confederate meat grinder over this cornfield. Just piecemeal, one at a time. You send them in, they get cut down, they retreat, and a new one arrives. It's all day. The final actions in the morning phase of the battle were around 10 a.m. Two regiments of the 12th Corps advance, only to be confronted by the division of John G. Walker, newly arrived from the Confederate right. So like early, like you said, how Lee is able to move his elements across his battle space to plug gaps and to set his defense. Um, He's able to do that here with Walker. Um, and prevent uh, the rest of 12th Corps uh, from advancing. So the morning phase ends with casualties on both sides of about 13,000 people, including two Union Corps commanders. Two Corps commanders. It's insane. That's so crazy to think of the ferocity of this battle. You said it ended at 10. Now, it started at around 5.30. You're you're at a four and a half hours in which 13,000 Americans were killed, wounded, or captured in the northern portion. So it's completely understandable that the the northern portion of this battlefield, the cornfield area, would have stagnated, and they just were exhausted. There's nothing more that they can do up there. And they're really not going to do a whole lot for the rest of the battle, and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and I I don't think we're going to see a lot of action out of Longstreet's men, or not Longstreet, but Stonewall Jackson's men here for the rest of the fight either because of that too. Right, well, and we're not going to see a whole lot of action from Longstreet's men on the far right due to the lack of action by Burnside's right. men uh, trying to get True. across that road. Good but point. what's the uh, what's the midday phase? Yeah, Let's so talk about that. Get into the midday phase. Uh, so this happens on the Sunken Road, better known today as the Bloody Lane. Oh, what an, what an yeah. amazing nickname. That is pretty scary. So French, another Union commander, loses contact with Sumner and Sedgwick in the north and for some reason heads south. Everyone else is fighting in this damn cornfield, and French decides he's going to go south, and 
This man is eager for his opportunity to see combat. So French finds skirmishers in his path and orders his men forward. So Confederates had put out skirmishers uh, in front of the defensive line and French is going after a baby. So these skirmishers are commanded by D.H. Hill, um, who also commands about another 2,500 men. He's got half the number of French. Three of his five brigades had already been torn up that day and seen action in the north, and they would be moved back here to the bloody lane. So Hill's, Hill's hurt. He's got casualties already, and he's going up against French, who's got over twice his combat strength. Um, it's so just, essentially, this is a... This is a fairly weak portion of Longstreet's line, right? Yep. Right in the center. Yeah. It's pretty le- it's pretty weak. Yeah, I'd, it's probably the weakest part of all of where Longstreet's at. So French is French has found the place to attack if he's going to attack anywhere on this line. French launches a series of brigade sized assaults against DH Hill's improvised breastworks about nine thirty AM. The first brigade to attack is commanded by Brigadier General Max Weber, and it's mostly inexperienced troops that had just um, been put into the army. They are quickly cut down by heavy rifle fire. Neither side has deployed any artillery at this point. So French goes at it again, second attack, the next brigade, another raw recruits commanded by Colonel Dwight Morris. Uh, they are subjected to heavy fire, but they're at least able to beat back a counterattack by the Alabama brigade commanded by Robert Rhodes. French then launches his third assault with another brigade under Brigadier General Nathan Kimball. His brigade has three veteran regiments, but they also fall under fire at the sunken road. So in under an hour, French's division loses 1,750 men. Out of the original 5,700. Yeah. So we're talking about like 25 to 30% casualties right. in one hour's time. And artillery's not even involved. Right. And it's just heavy fire, right? Well, rifle fire. You guys are just marching straight into rifle yeah. fire. We, it's again, Bjorn. It's this piecemeal attack by the Union. It's brigade after brigade after brigade, just like we saw in, up north, core after core after core. Why? Like, I don't understand why they can't do any sort of integrated attack. A division attack here probably would have punched through the line and got it into the Confederate rear. It would have been it would have been absolutely devastating. There is no way that the Confederates are gonna would have been able to withstand that form of a unified assault. Like look look what happens next. We see reinforcements arriving on both sides. Yep. So obviously Robert E. Lee is he has the time that is necessary. You know, at ten thirty he sends in his final reserves. Also so his final reserves already at ten thirty in the morning. Yeah. So Take note of that. Like that's a good pinpoint to put in this map here. At ten thirty in the morning, this battle has been raging for five hours. It's got many more hours left to go, and he is all out of reserves. Yep. The only reinforcements that are going to be moving from one spot to another are, are individual units that are going to be shifted from one section of the fighting to the next, wherever it's hottest. Utilizing the interior lines. That right there, the concept of utilizing your interior lines is the only thing that is going to save the Confederacy from absolute annihilation on this day of battle. Also, the arrival of A.P. Hill and his units coming from Harpers Ferry. But Lee has no idea where they are. He has no idea when they're getting there. And so he is committed fully to his defense now. He has no extra uh, ability to flex or use his armies in a way that he wants to. He is committed to this defense. Caldwell, another brigade commander for the Union, advances around the right flank of the Confederates. Colonel Francis Barlow and 350 men of the 61st and the 64th New York see a weak point in the line season null commanding the sunken road this is allows them to get enfilade fire into the confederate line turning it into a deadly trap so this is what, like so, so now the confederates are moving into this trap the union setting right so if you if you were actually there at the sunken road it's just basically a road that's had so many wagons on it that has actually been it's been pushed down into the ground so it's a beautifully looking trench system mm. like when you first get there you're like holy smokes no wonder they would have chosen this as a great position to, to defend 
But the problem is, is that it's so many rolling hills that if you are in the sunken road, you can only see about 50 to 100 yards in front of you. Mm. And then there is another uh, another draw or another saddle within yep. these, these rolling hills. And so there are avenues in which the union is going to be able to approach up to the sunken road without being completely destroyed by rifle fire. Remember, rifles go 550 yards. But if you are 100 yards away and you're hiding at the bottom of a hill, we can't, you know, you can't be seen. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the union uh, individual is going to be able to do. They're going to be able to get around utilizing these draws and they're going to find themselves in a position where they are now in command of this battlefield yep. and it will be a complete slaughter. That's why the sunken road got its new nickname. What was that nickname there, Brendan? Ruddy Lane. There you go. Sounds like a horror movie. So... <laughs> General Longstreet is able to um, hastily assemble a counterattack. Uh, 200 men led by DHL get around the federal left flank uh, near the sunken road. Um, so that kind of stems the collapse of the Confederates here at the spot. So we are seeing a stall in action in the north in the cornfield. Now we're at this place where no more action is going to happen in this uh, the middle area where the sunken lane is. So this fighting only lasts. So 930 to 1 a.m. So another four and a half hour chunk of fighting on the second road, named the Bloody Lane, 5,600 casualties, 3,000 Union, 2,600 Confederates, and it's an 800 yard long road. So like that is a very concentrated place of human death, right? Like I couldn't even imagine like the rivers of blood coming out of this, uh, off this road. Okay. So this would have been a great opportunity. You know, McClellan would have had an opportunity here to take advantage of uh, a weakened Confederate line. This is kind of right in the middle of where Lee's defense was. So if McClellan was able to, you know, put any fourth of his reserve or move Burnside into an attack here, um, he could have divided Lee's army and possibly defeated them here at this point. Uh, and he had ample forces to do so. He had a reserve of 3,500 cavalry. He had 10,300 infantry with General Porter's 5th Corps waiting near the middle bridge a mile, only a mile away. Uh, he had the 6th Corps under Major General Franklin. Uh, they had just arrived with 12,000 men. And Franklin was ready to exploit this breakthrough, but Sumner, the senior corps commander, ordered him not to advance. What's insane about this battle is that you're going to see McClellan, he's going to consistently show his cards in the fact that he's so tentative, he's so timid mm -hmm. in how he fights, and he's consistently waiting for the Confederates to pull some trick right. out of their sleeves. He's actually going to leave more men in reserve at this point in time than the Confederates are even going to have accessible. So there are going to be individuals in this battle who will not take part one bit. They will not fire one round during the entirety of this battle. They will sit in reserve waiting for some Confederate trap that is impossible and will not happen. And it just doesn't matter. Like, I think McClellan believes that the Confederates have way more men than they have. I think he thinks that they have like 100,000 men. So that's why he's very tentative to do any sort of attack. But he knew the strength of the... Like he saw Special Order 191. Like he knew what the plans were for the Confederates. He knew that AP Hill was not here, right? He knew that he was still in Harper's Ferry and just time and time again, his timidity leads to disaster. And that timidity is also put down into his core commanders, right? Sumner had the chance to win the day here and he doesn't take advantage. Right. Well, if you want to talk to someone who's timid, let's talk about Ambrose Burnside let's here at his bridge. All right. So this is the afternoon phase at the now called, Burn I'm assuming it wasn't called the Burnside Bridge before this fight. No, he's going to get, he's going to get it named after <laughs> him, him after his abysmal All right. So <laughs> McClellan's plan here called for Major General Ambrose Burnside and his Ninth Corps to conduct a diversionary attack in support of Hooker's First Corps. A diversionary attack usually happens before the main attack. 
And now we're talking about the afternoon fight. So, so he's basically doing it's the map it's the mopping up of the uh, attack. It's not the diversion. Right. It's let's see what we can yeah. do here. So McClellan wanted Burnside to draw Confederate attention away from the intended main attack in the north, but Burnside was ordered to wait for explicit instructions before launching his attack. And those orders did not get to him until 10 a.m. The main fight happened at 5.30. That's when Hooker attacked. <laughs> so, yeah, like like you said, Bjorn, these guys have watches. McClellan could have said, yeah. Burnside, you start your attack at 4 a.m. And then Hooker can start his attack at 5.30. Now you're coordinated. It's not that hard. Yeah, you don't. I don't need an order to tell me, right. you know, I don't need a written order You're somewhere a major to say, general. hey, you got to move forward. It's it's four in the morning. It's time for me to move right. forward. That's what we talk about. But so Burnside, he's got four divisions originally, yep. 12,500 troops. He's got 50 cannons. They're east of the Antietam Creek. There's this little bridge. And, you know, in my mind, I always kind of looked at it. And when you're reading about it, you find out that eventually we're going to we're going to talk about it. But about 600 individuals from Georgia are going to defend this entire bridge from 12,000 Union soldiers. And you think, how in the world is this possible? Well, one, when you've got a really timid general, but two, if you were to be at this battle, you would see that there's an open space on the east side of the river. But then on the west side, it, it's a sheer bluff. Like it is, it is almost impossible for someone to climb to the top of this hill where these 600 Georgians are going to be entrenched. So they've got an excellent view they're going to be able to put a lot of cover fire yeah. down on the Union soldiers as they are attempting to cross this bridge. But let's remember, 600 Georgians are going to be facing off against 12,000 Union soldiers. It's it The math doesn't add up. And this is just the result of an incredibly timid, incredibly timid general. So the craziest part about this, Brendan, is that Antietam Creek is at no time more than like 50 feet across and it's within wading depth. Right. And so the fact that, that General Burnside determines that he can only cross the river at this one bridge is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. He is not utilizing his mind. When I was when I was there, at, when I was at the battlefield, I'm, I was standing on the bridge watching as as individual tourists on tubes were just floating lazily down this creek. And I thought to myself, man, if I didn't care about getting wet right now, I could just walk across this river. Right. It's not even a river. It's just a creek. It's a creek. And he's utilizing it as a as a means to excuse his actions and requiring himself to go across the bridge is just one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. We said he started his attack at 10 a.m. By noon, he still hadn't crossed the creek against these 600 Georgians, and McClellan was getting a little upset. So he sends a, succe a succession of couriers to motivate Burnside to move forward. He ordered one aide, tell him if it costs 10,000 men, he must go now. He increased the pressure by sending his inspector general, Colonel Delos Sackett, to confront Burnside, who reacted indignantly. McClellan appears to think, I am not trying my best to carry this bridge. You are the third or fourth one who has been to me this morning with similar orders. Uh, it's like, let's yeah, be honest. Ambrose, let's go, brother. Dude, you are not honestly trying to carry this bridge. It's nonsense. It's just farcical that you can't get your 12,000 men across this bridge. Okay, so this is the third attempt that Burnside has to take this bridge. 12.30 p.m. And this attack is commanded by Brigadier General Edward Ferraro, uh, led by the 51st New York and the 51st Pennsylvania, who with adequate artillery support and a promise that a recently canceled whiskey ration would be restored if they were successful. <laughs> I love that. Let's give them men some whiskey and they're going to do it. They charge downhill, take up positions on the east bank, maneuvering a captured light howitzer to position. They fire double canister down the bridge. Uh, they get within 25 yards of the enemy. So by 1 p.m., Confederate ammunition is running low, and word reached General Toombs on the Confederate side 
that Rodman's men were crossing Snavely's Ford on their flank. Snavely's Ford is further down the creek from Ambrose Burnside's bridge. So Rodman and his men were able to cross on this ford and get to the flank. Toombs orders a withdrawal. His Georgians had cost the Federals more than 500 casualties and giving up fewer than 160 themselves. They had stalled Burnside's assault on the southern flank for more than three hours. And it was only because they started to run out of ammunition right. and they had realized that someone finally used their brain and said, this creek is not that big. Right. Let's, re- let's, go, let's go across it without utilizing a bridge. So what happens next with this Burnside assault? Yeah. One thing I want to say here is throughout the whole Maryland campaign, the Union fails to use their reconnaissance in any manner to actually help shape their understanding of the battlefield. McClellan doesn't understand what the Confederates are doing. Even after he gets Special Order 191, he doesn't understand how the Confederates are arrayed. Uh, once they get to Sharpsburg, they don't understand how the defense is arrayed. And so McClellan has this ununderstandable attack plan. And then here, he doesn't understand where the where the crossing points are on this creek. If you're going to cross across a creek, uh, the, one of the first things you do is figure out where you can get across. It's absolute negligence yeah. on the part of Burnside that his men, first of all, didn't open up the engagement early on in the morning when he was supposed to right. be the diversion. But then the fact that they spent so many hours just trying to get across a bridge that honestly didn't have to get across is nuts. So Burnside starts his assault across a bridge and it stalls on its own, not even against enemy fire. It stalls on its own. His officers had neglected to transport ammunition across the bridge, uh, which was now becoming a bottleneck. Uh, for his soldiers, artillery, and wagons. This is another two-hour delay. Now, it's important to understand during this fight, uh, things are getting really, really desperate for the Confederates. Like, they've run out of reserves early on in the battle. They're patching things together. They're plugging holes with whatever chaotic men they can find. Uh, uh, An interesting story is towards the center of the line, if you go to the battlefield, there's a statue and a cannon uh, in one location, and they were so desperate that at one point, General James Longstreet took a cannon and they he begun running uh, that battery on his own. So he and his staff began manning a cannon because there was nothing left for them to do. <laughs> they couldn't do any, there was no one else to move around. There was no one else to provide orders to. James Longstreet, the general, the commander of the First Corps, was holding the horses of the men on his staff who were running a gun because that was the most beneficial they could be. There, there are stories of generals who are grabbing rifles mm-hmm. and jumping into the line on their own because there is nothing left for them to do, and it has now become incredibly desperate. This whole time, Lee is waiting on AP Hill's Light Division to get back from the 17-mile march from Harper's Ferry. By 2 p.m., Hill's men had reached Bottler's Ford, and Hill was able to confer uh, with the relieved Lee at 2.30 p.m. Bottler's Ford is a Ford on the Potomac, and Hill is able to reach Lee at 2.30 p.m. Uh, the Federals, no idea that Hill had gotten to the battlefield with his 3,000 men. And these were pretty, like, they had just come off a long a long march, obviously, but they were fresh. Like, they haven't been in combat, and the combat at Harper's Ferry was very light. So they're pretty fresh getting here. So the rest of A.P. Hill's division arrives at 3.30 p.m., and Hill divides his column uh, with two brigades moving southeast to guard his flank and the other three, about 2,000 men, moving to the right of Toombs' brigade and prepares for a counterattack. At 3.40 p.m., Brigadier General Maxie Gregg's brigade of South Carolina attacks the 16th Connecticut on Rodman's left flank in the cornfield of Farmer John Otto. The Connecticut men had been in service for only three weeks and their line disintegrated within 100, with 185 casualties. The 4th Rhode Island came up on their right, uh, but they had poor visibility because of the high stocks of the corn. 
and they're disoriented because of the many Confederates wearing Union uniforms captured at Harper's Ferry. They also broke and ran, leaving the 8th Connecticut far out in advance and isolated. They were enveloped and driven down the hills toward Antietam Creek. A counterattack by regiments from the Kanawha Division fell short. So altogether, the 9th Corps from Burnside had suffered casualties of about 20%, but still possessed twice the number of Confederates confronting them. Unnerved by the collapse of his flank, Burnside ordered his men all the way back to the west bank of the Antietam, where he urgently requested more men and guns. McClellan was able to provide just one battery, and he said, I can do nothing more. I have no infantry. In fact, however, McClellan had two fresh corps in reserve, Porter's 5th and Franklin's 6th, but he was too cautious, concerned he was greatly outnumbered, and that a massive counterstrike by Lee was imminent. Birdsign's men spent the rest of the day guarding the bridge they had suffered so much to capture. So that 17-mile march by A.P. Hill's men, that right there is what saved the day for the Confederacy. You know, there's a story about how Robert E. Lee is is looking, he's done everything he possibly can. He's standing there, and you can just picture it in your mind. He's standing there watching his lines collapse in upon themselves, realizing that if his lines evaporate, they will not get across that bridge in time. His entire army will be absolutely annihilated, as will the Confederate cause. And you can just imagine he looks off to his right side and he sees the flags and there's A.P. Hill. You know, there's a story that said he actually went up to A.P. Hill and he gave him a hug and basically told him that you have saved the you have saved the Confederacy hey. this day. Uh, and that is, you know, showing any form of emotion is not something that Robert E. Lee ever did. But that was how drastic hey. and how desperate the situation had become at the time that he would show any form of emotion to a general who had made it just in the nick of time, slams into the Union's flank, rolls him up, and timid Burnside retreats back to the to the bridge in which he had found himself early on in the morning. So the battle's over. 5.30 p.m. On the morning of September 18th, Lee's army prepares to defend against the oncoming federal assault. That never actually came. After an improvised truce for both sides to recover and exchange their wounded, Lee's forces begin withdrawing across the Potomac that evening to return back to Confederate Virginia. That's just nuts. There is no way that anyone could imagine uh, that the Confederacy at this point in time significantly outnumbered the Union. They sat all day the next day. You know, the battle yep. took place on the 17th of September. On the 18th, they sat there and they looked at each other. And that was all that occurred. Yep. No one was willing to fight because mm. the losses had been so substantial and the fighting had been so fierce. Plus, McClellan, who should have attacked on that day, was too timid to do so. So losses from the battle were heavy on both sides. The Union had lost 12,410 men with twenty with 2,108 dead. Confederate casualties were 10,316 with 1,547 dead. This represented 25% of the federal force and 31% of the Confederates. Overall, both sides lost a combined total of 22,726 casualties in a single day. The fighting on September 17, 1862 killed 7,650 U.S. and Confederate soldiers. More Americans died in battle on that day than any other day in the nation's history. Antietam is sometimes cited as the bloodiest day in all of American history. Antietam ranks fifth in terms of total casualties in Civil War battles, falling behind Gettysburg, Chickamauga, Chancellorsville, and Spotsylvania Courthouse. But both Which battles were also multi, multiple days, right? Yeah. All multiple day yeah. battles. President Lincoln was disappointed in McClellan's performance. He believed that McClellan's overly cautious and poorly coordinated actions in the field had forced the battle to a draw rather than a crippling Confederate defeat. The president was even more astonished that from September 17th to October 26th, despite repeated entreaties from the War Department and the president himself, McClellan declined to pursue Lee across the Potomac. Just let him get away. Yep. Lincoln relieved McClellan of his command of the Army of the Potomac on November 5th, 
effectively ending the general's military career. He was replaced on November 9th with the very successful general Ambrose Burnside. Kyle, I can't believe that. And the thing about it is that like, Burnside didn't... Pick? Like, there's no other one... Honestly, though, Burnside didn't believe that he was up to par. He didn't believe that he was capable of doing this. But guess what? The union had no one else. No one else. There was no one else at the time. And basically, they said, Burnside, you got it. Now, what we're going to see after this is Burnside's just going to absolutely fail miserably at the Battle of Fredericksburg later on in December. But uh, that's 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 yet to come. That's a discussion for another day. Another big result from Antietam. This allowed President Lincoln to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, which gave Confederate states until January 1st, 1863 to return or else lose their slaves. The Union victory and Lincoln's proclamation played a considerable role in the dissuading of the governments of France and Britain from recognizing the Confederacy. Some suspected they were planning to do so in the aftermath of another Union defeat. When the issue of the emancipation was linked to the progress of the war, neither government had the political will to oppose the United States, since it linked support of the Confederacy to support for slavery. And that's it. Yeah, just just the thought of how things could have been differently. You know, scenario one, the Confederacy wins this battle from some outrageous idea. I mean, it's hard to imagine being outnumbered almost three to one. How he could have, how Lee could have pulled through with a victory. You know, I don't. But, I don't see. A, I don't see a way for that to happen here. I, I think he yeah. has set up his defense as best as he could on that day on September seventeenth. There's probably some things he could have done in the Maryland campaign uh, to maybe give himself a better shot at doing what he set out to do in Maryland, but it kind of seemed like he did the best thing that he could do here was just basically save his army. Yeah, there was there was not a whole lot he would have been able to do. But on the flip side, if McClellan had been able to, you know, synchronize watches and get his men to all engage on all fronts at the same time, there is no conceivable way that Lee would have been able to resist the, the advance right. of the Union. It would have destroyed his army. The war would have been over, essentially, because look, Appomattox Courthouse, when Lee surrendered his army in 1865, the war was essentially over. That same argument would be valid in this case. The Battle of Antietam ends with an outstanding Union victory. The entire army of Northern Virginia is destroyed. And guess what? The war is essentially over. There is no way. There was no one left in Northern Virginia in which to defend against the Union advance down in captured the capital. And it could have ended with, you know, obviously... Slavery was on the docket here with the yep. Emancipation Proclamation. Before the Battle of Antietam, no one was outwardly talking about ending slavery. It was all, we're fighting to return the Southern states to the Union. But after this battle, it provides Lincoln with the leeway in which he feels like he can politically take on the extra, the extra cause of not only bringing the South back, but finally freeing the slaves yeah. once and for all. And so that is one of the, the huge bonuses that come out of this Battle of Antietam. Had McClellan done a better job, who knows what could have right. happened. Man, what a crazy fight. This whole story has been super intriguing. I can't wait to talk about more Civil War battles with you. Uh, but before we do any more Civil War battles, we have a different battle we want to cover. We're going across the Atlantic to the island of Britain. We're going to cover William the Conqueror's conquering of England at the Battle of Hastings. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next one.